You know, I know we love it when a plan comes together, but the Lord loves it often when our plans don't come together because he's doing beautiful things in it. And uh, I don't know, I really appreciated that, Andrew, actually. So I, I was uh, grateful for that. And I'm grateful also that we've got, again, a time that we can look at what God is doing around the world uh, because it's such a significant thing. We, we're so, we easily get caught up kind of in our own, you know, little worlds. And it's good to branch out, look out, be different places. And that actually happened recently uh, with, with me. I, I found myself a couple nights ago in downtown Oakland at the Fox Theater. And you're going, Chris, what are you doing down there? Well, there was a reason, okay? There's this jazz group called Snarky Puppy. It's a great band, and I wanted to see them. And I took my, my, uh, my cohort in jazz, my, my friend in jazz, Tom Ravenberg. So he, he's the sound guy back there. So we're kind of like in this, I don't know, it's a club of two, essentially. <laughs> we're the... We jokingly call each other the sultans of swing, and that's what we are, kind of. Anyway, but we, we went down there, and we, we went to, uh, you know, hear this thing. And so when you're down there, though, you got to grab some food first, right? Well, yeah. And so there's a place right across the street, and it's kind of this fusion ramen place. But we knew we should go there for one reason. There was a line to get in. Right, that's a good sign. If there's a, like if you walk into a restaurant and it's you and like the family of the cook and the, it's a bad sign, right? But this place was, there was a line going out the door. And I'm telling you, we were not led astray by the line. It was fantastic. It was so good. Um, and it, it kind of makes you think, you know, I had oxtail ramen. Have you ever had that before? See, you probably, now you're going, oxtail, what are you talking about? You know what? If it's prepared well, it's really good. You should try it sometime. But uh, what happens is, I, I was thinking of that restaurant and this meal that we enjoyed, and, and I'm going, you know, what a contrast that is with, you know, some of the things that you would see on TV. Maybe you're familiar with this show called Kitchen Nightmares. A guy named Gordon Ramsay. You know, every other word of the guy is beeped out, by the way, right? You know, he's just like, what does he do? He comes into the restaurant because these restauranteurs, they've got, a, they've got this establishment, and they're caught up in marketing and decor and, and how they're going to print the menus and how to staff, but they forget one critical thing. Does the food taste good? And so he'll go through and, and, and he'll actually, you know, spend a lot of, of time painfully showing these restaurant owners that they have missed the entire point. They need brutal honesty. And so he'll order about a half a dozen items off the menu and then he will, with great passion and clarity, explain how horrible each one tastes. This tastes like the underside of my shoe, only a little worse. You know, he'll just say things. He's, he's trying to bring them out of this phase of denial. Why? Because they have to get honest about reality. What are you really there for? And those distractions happen, don't they? In life. Uh, we see it in other places. In the, uh, Gibson Guitar Company. They wanted to become the Nike of musical instruments. So what did they do? They bought a software company. And you're like, folks, stop. Psh, psh, psh. You are Gibson Guitars. You don't need to do that. Uh, General Motors. What did they do? Eventually, they actually became a company that's a pension company that happens to make cars on the side to fund this thing. 
they've missed the point. And it's one thing when it happens in those areas, but you know what? It's even more tragic when God's people forget the purpose that God has for them. It happens so easily, doesn't it? We, we, we easily get caught up in, well, what are, what are we doing? And it's so quickly, especially within you know, the American church in the 21st century, it becomes a, it's about programs and buildings and this sort of kind of entertainment and, and ways that we can try to like muster up a crowd and we forget the whole point. But it happens to us personally too, doesn't it? It's possible for us to walk out these doors and to go through several days, maybe even an entire week, without remembering we don't just go to work because we have a job. We don't just live next to people in our neighborhood because that's where we happen to live. We don't just have interactions with family because we happen to have been born into that family. We don't have the friends that we have by accident. No, all of those are avenues for the gospel. The person in the cubicle, two cubicles down, doesn't just so happen to be there. The person that, that, that you find yourself next to on BART didn't just so happen to sit near you. These are all gospel opportunities. And, and, and it's very easy for us to forget. And as has been mentioned, today is Global Impact Sunday, and we do this each year to, to recalibrate our hearts around God's heart for the nations. And so in light of that, I want you to think about uh, what God said to Abraham right in the beginning when he first um, gave that promise to him. What did he say? In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the very beginnings, even, even prior to Sinai, prior to the Exodus. This is when God is just beginning to work in calling a people to himself. The very initial promise is you are going to be a blessing to who? One ethnic group? One kind of area of the world? No. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And yet, like us, Israel too forgot. She kind of got caught up in all kinds of other things, wanting to be like the nations around her. You know, give us a king like the nations have. You know what? That's pretty, let's start worshiping the gods that the other nations worship. And then a reaction against that when God brings judgment through the, the, the exiles of Babylon and Assyria and others, then they counter the other way and they go, you know what? We don't care about the nations. It's all about us and we're going to stay pure and we're going to ignore everything around us. We're going to make areas of the law so, so far removed uh, to border us from ever violating the law again that we're going to become this, this exclusive, arrogant, ingrown people. And so... I'd like you to open, if you would, to, to Psalm 87 in light of what we're celebrating today. This is a psalm that's not often read or enjoyed. This psalm doesn't typically make the, the top 10 of psalm devotionals or preaching series. Unless you're around me, because it's one of my favorites. So if you have been around me, you're like, oh man, we're in Psalm 87 again. Yeah, we are. You're right. Because it's one of the most beautiful psalms that describes God's heart 
God's heart for the nations. And so because this is the word of God and out of respect for it and a desire to listen closely, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Psalm 87. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. Shall I mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me? Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will count when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Selah. Then those who sing as well as those who play the flute shall say, all my springs of joy are in you. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that in, in our time together in this psalm, we ask that you would awaken our hearts. Awaken our hearts to, to your compassion and justice and your rule and reign and also your call to all peoples everywhere to turn to you, to know you to come to life in you, to be reconciled to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. We pray that our passion would link with yours, that that we would have your understanding and your view, not only of the world, but also specifically of this time, this place where we live and the unique opportunities that you've given each of us to, to be those that would call people who are far from you close to you. We ask that you would do mighty things amongst us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So as we travel through this this psalm, we're going to see that God achieves his splendid salvation. Like many psalms, this psalm is about God and what he does. And and he achieves it, he accomplishes it. And I'm using the word splendid on purpose because splendid has this idea of something that's that's magnificent, that's majestic, that's impressive. And that's what God's salvation is. When we see the intricate way it weaves together from the Old Testament all the way through to to Jesus and and, and all all that lines up and interweaves. And, and what we find, first of all, is this. He, he achieves his splendid salvation, firstly, with a surprising priority. Look at verses 1 through 3. It begins with his foundations in the holy mountains. And, and that's a very abrupt beginning. This, this entire psalm, one reason some of the commentators say, people avoid this psalm. It's, it's, so, it's enigmatic, it's terse, these brief statements come out, blam, and then just kind of moves on. What's going on here? And so it begins with this abrupt but emphatic statement. Uh, The first word of the psalm literally is his establishment. So in other words, the city being described here is Zion, 
God's holy city, owes all of its stability and sanctity to God himself. He's the one that establishes that foundation. And, and it's in, in the holy mountains. And, and by the way, they're not holy because he's not going there because they're holy mountains. No, they are holy because he's there. He loves this place. If you, if you go to Jerusalem, you can kind of see there's this beautiful way in which she is set there uh, atop a mountain. If, if there's, when you talk about going to Jerusalem, you see throughout the pages of Scripture, it's they went up to Jerusalem. That's why, because elevation-wise, Jerusalem is up. And so God is the one who, who, who loves this place and it's, in many ways, it's God has set his love here. God has set his, his care here, his focus here, because God loves you. It's similar to the way he's described how he chose the people of Israel. Not because you were might, not, be, not mighty, not because you were great or numerous. No, because of my grace. But then we find in the next verse, again, this very surprising priority. Look, he loves the gates of Zion more than... All the other dwelling places of Jacob, and the dwellings of, of Jacob, he's not just talking about homes that are scattered throughout Israel. No, he's talking about the fulfillment of the divine promise that came to God's people from Abraham on, that, that, that one day they would enjoy the benefits of life in the land. So these are, these are the promises of God they've been banking on. But notice, there's a comparative here. The Lord loves something more than that. And it's almost like you, you see God's love here and you see that God loves you know, three things. And certainly the, the city, Jerusalem, is implied there. And, and so God loves the city. God, God loves the places of Jacob, the dwelling places, God's people, their, their, their promise fulfilled there. But more than that, he loves the gates. And you think, why? Why the gates? You know, gates, gates were very important in, in ancient cities. Uh, gates were built to defend against invaders. Um, that's even why cities were often built up on high places and on mountains and other things, because in hills and other places, they're harder to attack. And so you'd have the, the height factor of the city above where everyone else was, and then you had the, the, the way in which walls and gates would protect the city. Uh, they, they, they would be made out of wood, typically. They'd have iron fittings, and, and they would engineer them with towers around them, typically. So these ancient engineers would, would form these things for the purpose of making sure that if, if invaders were trying to come in, you had a place to, to shoot down at them and to close that gate to keep them out. And they were built in a certain way to protect them from fire or hacking instruments or battering rams. And, and so you, you would go, well, why would these amazing structures here in this city be something that God loves even more than these other things that have been described? Why would these gates be, be, in this sense, more important to God or more loved by him? But then we think about this, it's really because of the very way he's actually designed not only the city of Jerusalem, but the people that dwell there, the people that he's gathered to himself. God has a greater love for Zion's gates because those gates allow people to come in. In the gospel, those gates are thrown wide open. Those gates are open to all true worshipers, all of those who come to God. 
And that's a stunning thing to think about because if you were walking by Jerusalem, the first thing you're going to see is not going to be, wow, look at those gates. (laughs) It's going to be, look at the city. It's going to be, look at the walls. It's going to be, look at all these other things. But God loves the gates even more because God has a heart to bring people far from him, close to him. Is that your heart? Do you remember when you first came to Jesus? Do you remember that time? Do you remember those those first moments of recognizing that what you saw in the gospel, that this free salvation fully accomplished by Christ, offered to you as a gift to be received by faith. Do you remember that moment and what it was like to actually understand that your sins, all of them, have been cast in the depths of the sea? The gates are open. They were open for you. And when you walked in that first time, Your life was never the same. How does that inform the way we live today? How does that ignite the passion that we would have for others to come to know that same salvation, forgiveness of sins? You know, Ephesians 2, Mike referred to portions of Ephesians earlier today, but... We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were by nature children of wrath. That's all of us. And yet, what does it say? But God, rich in mercy. And what does he do? He takes us when we're dead and he makes us alive. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. So God achieves his splendid salvation with a surprising priority. God loves the gates, and they're open. But we don't just see that. We also see that that God achieves a splendid salvation towards a surprising purpose. We find that in verses 4 to 6. We find that it initiates with a quote, someone speaking. Who's speaking? It's the Lord himself. Shall I mention? That's God speaking. And, And the way that phrase works, it's commonly used culturally as sort of what a recorder or a registrar in a courtroom would say. That's where that phrase comes from. So the idea is God is declaring himself as king and these people are members of his realm. And then we look at the list of people and we go, who are they? And that's what's really shocking because you would think it's all going to be children of Abraham, right? This is Zion. This is God's city. These are God's gates. This is God's land where he's called God's people to be. And yet, the first one listed, shall I mention Rahab? Huh? 
The first person gathered to hear this psalm the first time, they're going, hey, Korah, you sons, you got to rewrite this because that's just not right. Who's Rahab? Well, the, the, the name was initially used as the name of a sea monster or a creature that had dynamic powers exerted against the purposes of God. Later, Egypt would become to be, could come to be seen as that embodiment. By the way, this is not Rahab um, mentioned later in terms of the spies that came to Jerusalem. It's a different spelling, different term. Okay, so not referring to her. But it is referring to Egypt and referring to this notion of, of a sea monster. And Egypt is essentially God's enemy. I mean, the people of God were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And yet, there's this list. Shall I mention Rahab? And then you think that's bad. Then there's the next group of people mentioned, Babylon. What? Babylon? If if you want to just have one shorthand term in the scriptures for apostasy and debauchery, Babylon will do. Even in the New Testament, the the ultimate expression of idolatry is, is Babylon the Great in Revelation 17. But here, what do we see? Rahab, Egypt, Babylon. What are they? Notice this. They are among those who know me. And at that point, again, the the Israelite hearing this is going, what is he talking about? To know that this is is a a sign of, a description of intimate relational knowledge. In, in, In Genesis, you know, Adam knew his wife Eve. It's that idea. These people have a relationship with me. Rahab and Babylon, they are among those who know me. And certainly in our minds, we go, we go back and we think of, of John 17, where, where, where Jesus says clearly, this is eternal life. And look at what it says, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is a stunning statement. And God, God is, is making a very, very surprising declaration of his purpose here. What's he doing? He's taking treacherous enemies and he's making them a part of his prized people by grace. But he's not content to just leave it there. He'll go on. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. And so now now there's sort of a cascading effect of all these other people groups. Again, all of them enemies of God and his purposes and his people throughout different sections of the Old Testament. The Philistines, they were enemies of Israel, especially during the time of Saul and David. They, They came from the Canaanite coastland from Crete. And they were very much opposed to what God was doing, and they took every opportunity to attack and derail. 
Uh, some scholars trace them back and would say this is, this is when you know, Europeans first entered the biblical record, the Philistines. So if you've got European descent, congrats, you're a Philistine. We should be really grateful for this verse. Because the gates are open to you and me too. Tyre is another nation. They were very sophisticated kind of people in the land of Canaan. And uh, they were Phoenicians. They would have been those who, who lived in the area of modern Lebanon. They were a warring, seafaring people. And, and, and they were callous toward God. And yet here they are listed as those who know him. Listed as those who are coming into the community of God's people to worship Yahweh. And then Ethiopia. That's a portion of Eastern Africa. In this context, it might be referring to all of the continent. But the point would be these are people who are far away. To them, that would be like off to the ends of the earth practically at that time. And so places from, places from far away are also coming and gathering here and worshiping. And, and, and he's not content just to leave it as, yes, I'm taking these enemies and I'm making them a part of my people by divine grace. More than that, notice the phrase, but this one was born there. Again, even more emphatic. And you'll notice that that phrase happens three times in this psalm. This one was born there. This one and that one were born in her. This one was born there. The emphasis being that of birth, of spiritual birth. It's very surprising and remarkable that God has given these foreign believers the same place as, as, as native-born Israelites. Even the proselyte from the Old Testament, the, 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 someone who is from the nations who would want to turn to Yahweh, they were not treated in the exact same way. There were differences. And so there's this picture of, of new birth here. And you kind of wonder, you remember in, in John 3 when Nicodemus is talking with Jesus and Jesus is saying, hey, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, hey, wait, how do, I, how do I enter into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus is going, yeah, he does the face palm, like, really? And then he says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you, are the teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? You know, maybe this psalm is one of the places he should have seen that. But there is a, a, a new life that's found as these turn to the Lord. And, 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 and there's a way in which God is bringing about stunning victory. God is accomplishing this. In verse 5, we find that uh, kind of a picture where you've got this reiteration, this one and that one, even more in fact. So particular people groups, they were born in her, in Zion, in Jerusalem. And notice what verse 5 says, and the Most High himself will establish her. It's talking about Jerusalem, and the language there would convey this idea of, of the mother city. In her, they are being, they are, they are uh, verse 5, they are born in her. There's this picture of, of Jerusalem as the mother city. And, and I think that, again, that is something that is stunning to see. That God is bringing this about. And that 
even Jerusalem is established by his working in that way, that she becomes the mother city to all these different nations that previously opposed God. Um, t- you know, later today we're going to be enjoying uh, some, some food downstairs, as was mentioned before. And all of us are bringing foods from our different cultural backgrounds. And um, hey, folks, my last name is Oliveri. You know what that means? We brought pasta. That's what that means. Why? Because it's food from the mother country. <sighs> right? That's what it is. That's the idea. But we, we have this idea of the mother nation, the mother place, the mother city. So what he's saying here is Jerusalem, Zion is, in essence, the mother country of all these people from all these different nations because they were born in her. They've come to Yahweh. They've trusted him. They want to worship him. And they experience, by his grace, a a, a way in which they are not of what they used to be. They are his people. You know what that means? That means if you've repented and if you've believed, you've experienced a new birth. And that Zion is your true place. Zion is your actual home city. I love how the New Testament describes it. Uh, When you come to Jesus, old things have passed away. New things have come. You're a new creature. You've been given a new identity. You've received God's grace. You've been given an inheritance. You've been redeemed from the slave market of sin. You're reconciled to the one who made you to to walk and live. Not not in order to secure his acceptance. That's already been done by Jesus. Not in order to maintain some sort of way in which you're reconciled to God. No, Jesus accomplished that. It's finished. It's done. And now you're free to love him and love others because of what Christ has accomplished. You don't have to work to maintain your justified status, your, your declaration that God's declared you righteous in, the, in his courtroom. You don't have to do that. You're new. So God achieves his splendid salvation with, with a surprising priority and also with a surprising purpose. And, and, and then we have to ask, well then, what's the result? What happens? And we find here, it's streams of praise. Look at verse 7. Then those who sing as well as those who play the flute shall say, all my springs of joy are in you. And if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you'll notice something. When you're walking around, it's dry. It's hot, especially if you go in the summer. You're going to experience sometimes, you've never been more thirsty in your whole life. You're going to be walking around. And then when there finally is a water source of some kind, it's like, whoa. But then the question is, is it drinkable? And oftentimes, it is not drinkable. But then when you actually find clean, running water that you can actually drink, oh, man. You just want to just 
take your jug and take your friend's jug and take their jug and fill it up and just dump it on you and uh, you're just, it's so refreshing. And, and, and they have a term for that kind of water. They had a term for that in the Old Testament. You know what it's called? Living water. It's different. It's not just any water. It's living water. It's clean. It's moving. It's refreshing. And so this, this picture of living water is, is something that is used throughout the scriptures. We see it in a lot of places. Uh, in, in Isaiah 58, it says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Zechariah 14, on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. It's referring to Jesus' return, the millennial kingdom, and what will happen there. And it says the waters are going to flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. Again, summer, that's when the waters dry up. And this is saying, no, not in that time. The waters will flow. What does Jesus say in John 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Of course, the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get living water? And later, Jesus will say this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we come to that great day. Jesus is back. And notice, in his kingdom, in his rule, for the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The response to God's surprising passion and purpose is to praise him for he gives us life, true life, living water. It comes from him and we need to live aware of this. We need to rejoice that all of us here, we have been enemies of God. We've been made God's friend through the redemption purchased by Jesus the Messiah. And then, in light of that, we need to live out his purpose, not our distracted purpose. So often, brothers and sisters, we run around like a restaurant who's forgotten we're supposed to make good-tasting food. We think we're running around to, I don't know, achieve the most comfortable life possible. In America, we get distracted and think that somehow politics is going to deliver us. We, we start to think that if my job would come together or if I could somehow achieve this goal, be it financial or educational or relational or whatever it is, then my life would be fill in the blank. But no. If you're here as a believer, if you've trusted Jesus, you've been given new life. You've been given the spirit who dwells within you. 
those streams flowing out of your heart, that's because God lives inside of you. And in light of that, we want to live in alignment with his purpose, with his passion. And it is that Rahab and Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia and all people from all tribes, from all nations would come to know him and be rescued and redeemed from the coming wrath that is real. They would be redeemed and rescued by Jesus. So will you embrace God's surprising passion and purpose today? And if you're here today and you've never come to that place of trusting in Jesus, the invitation is open wide. And you might think, well, you don't know what kind of life I've lived. You don't know the things I've done. There's no way I can be forgiven. Well, I'm telling you, these nations that are listed here in this psalm, they've done worse. Read the Old Testament accounts. Understand historically, they were despicable, evil people who were bent on crushing God's people and God's work. And yet, what does God do? This one was born there. And that invitation is open to you as well. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've not kept God's law and trust him that Jesus, his life, that he lived in, in, in your place, the life you could never live, and the death that he died is the death that he died in your place. And you can be reconciled to the one who made you. You can come to life for the first time. as we are thinking through the gates and the fact that they're open to all and our desire to call those far from God close to him, let's remember something else. Here in the East Bay Area, the nations have come to us. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, we're reaching out around the world. Yes, we have brothers like Mike who are taking the gospel and gospel training all over the planet. And yet here in the East Bay, there are people here from all over the world. Why is that? Well, because in the Bay Area, you know why people still come to the Bay Area? They come here to make their fortune. It's been that way since the gold rush. And then two things typically happen. Some of them utterly fail. And we are here to show them the real fortune in Jesus. That's why we're here. Others, this is more challenging, they actually succeed super dangerous because sometimes the delusion of I don't need God kind of goes along with that. And yet for many, they find themselves disillusioned. They're just as empty as they were before they came. But do you realize you have a part in that? They're among us here. Let's rejoice. As a matter of fact, in our church family here, we're going to experience it a little bit later, but do you realize in our church family there's, last time I had checked, there's about 15 different countries represented here. It's exciting. And there's more than I know about. I always miss some. <laughs> but we've got from, from uh, Eastern Europe all the way down to the continent of Africa, Central America, Asia, 
various parts of Asia. Um, we might have people here from, from Pennsylvania, actually. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's, it's, it's possible. I don't know. It's possible. But as we do that, as we scatter now, you know, we're going to leave here. We're going to have lunch together downstairs. But as we leave this place and embark on another Monday morning, let's not approach it just because we have a routine. Let's not approach it in a routine way. Each of us is strategically placed to carry out God's surpassing, splendid, and beautiful passion and purpose in reaching the nations, in reaching people from every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic group, every culture. Let's be focused on that and a part of that, and let's engage in that to his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that you would work and move in us to take to heart your heart for the nations. And may you be glorified as we scatter throughout every day that we have, as we scatter throughout the weeks, and as we engage in work and at home and in our neighborhoods and with our families and wherever we find ourselves. May we honor you in sharing the good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.